Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Inspiration's inaugural broadcast, Inspiration Live. This is a new 45-minute weekly live program, which allows you, our subscribers, to hear about Inspiration's views on some of the latest and hottest topics and emerging trends. Slightly different version uh, of Inspiration Live is that it'll allow you also to participate in the conversation. So what we're going to do is speak for about 20 minutes um, and each week we'll have a number of uh, content um, team members providing their views um, and then open up to the floor. So my guests this week are Maritina Canela Corpulu, Head of Research, and John McNair, Director of Content, whom I think everyone will know extremely well. Um, this week, um, I would like to hand over to my colleague, John, who's going to discuss um, the UK pension provider, Ness foray into the infrastructure sector. John, welcome. Thanks, Marco. Um, and yeah, as Marco suggests, you know, in, in this portion of our Inspiration Live shows, we'll be picking up on some eye-catching latest news and highlighting why we think it's worthy of some extra examination. Um, also to draw out some potential wider impacts um, and then look ahead to where that particular story might go next. Um, we also, later on, will invite you to chip in your own commentary, observations and questions. Um, and highlight any other stories perhaps that you think are majorly in, impactful um, and discuss this with us towards the end of the show. So, but first on to the story and uh, what I want to talk about today, as Marco says, is the latest news in relation to um, NEST, which is the UK Government Workplace Pension Scheme um, and its move into infrastructure. This is a, a multifaceted story, I think, uh, one that is developing incrementally over the past couple of years. Um, but the most recent development concerns the pension managers, uh, pension manager choosing CBRE Caledon and GLIL infrastructure to invest three billion pounds of its deposits into infrastructure by the end of the current decade. Um, and 650 million pounds of that will come within the coming year. That will take Nest's portfolio up to 5% invested in infrastructure, um, and that will be spread across um, the whole gamut of infrastructure and renewables uh, sectors. So some of the ones named with fibre, towers, data centres, uh, hydrogen, public transport, roads, ports, rolling stock, district heating, utilities, and also obviously renewables generation, um, you name it. Um, all of that will be... Uh, within developed markets, um, but will be spread uh, quite widely across the globe. So in terms of the detail, before we move on to the uh, analysis of this story, so CBRE will be managing 400 million pounds of that initial 650 million. Um, that said, Nest says deal availability will determine the exact split between the two investment managers it has chosen. Uh, both of them will deploy the capital through open-ended funds, with CBRE doing so through a global vehicle and GLIL primarily into the UK market. Uh, and this has all been the result of a tender launch by Nest, um, which was designed to award mandates, three in total, for equity investment into infrastructure. Um, now, the current award follows shortly after a similar £250 million tie-up with Octopus Renewables to invest into European renewables projects. Um, there has, have also been other private debt arrangements with companies like Amundi and BlackRock, 
and a separate one uh, debt arrangement with BNP Paribas. Uh, John, thank you for that introduction. It's really an interesting deal. Um, so for our audience, do you think that this is just more capital coming to the market? So what is specifically interesting about Ness's approach and why do you think that this is maybe a cutting edge and in interesting transaction? Um, well, I mean, to, to deal with the, the question of more capital coming into market, obviously, Nest is certainly far from the first pension scheme to invest directly in infrastructure projects. This is perhaps a mega trend, if, if you want to use that word, for the pensions industry. Um, that is well underway. And the reasons for this are well known, of course, return on gilts being zero, um, but also long-term funding commitments for the pensions uh, schemes themselves um, set against aging populations. Um, but, you know, as I've said, you know, Nest, by spreading far and wide across multiple different sectors and geographies, but also across different uh, stages of projects in terms of their development, uh, construction and operation. Um, and there's, as I said, different strategies at play here. So there's equity on the one hand, um, split across different um different sub-strategies, but then also debt, um, as I said. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, any kind of important um, ramifications, if you like, or um, what uh, is particularly, you know, different about this, I think, you know, it's important to consider what Nest actually is. Um, now, this is a pension fund, as I said, set up by the UK government, um, and it covers the sizable part of the population that didn't previously have formal pension arrangements. Um, it's well known that the days of final salary pensions are all but gone for most people and particularly for younger workers. Um, and this sets out to fill some of the gaps and And it's been, you know, quite a substantial undertaking. There's 9.4 million members, I think, at the last count. Um, there's 15.5 billion pounds and rising of assets under management. Um, so now this is a quite a vast new link between the general public and infrastructure projects and a, and a direct one. And of course, uh, you know, maybe most of those um, who are saving with Nest perhaps will not be even aware that their money is being used in this in this case, but there will be, you know, a number of, a number of them that do. And, and so it is, um, that is significant. And I know that the Nest management have been keen to talk up um, this side of things. You know, they talk about their members being able to see and perhaps even reach out and touch these real assets that uh, that are not just, you know, numbers in a table um, or in an investment report. Um, that also, you know, that, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to ask you, this is very interesting because, you know, on the one hand, you could say that this is merely, um, you know, another pension provider dipping their toe into the infrastructure and energy markets. And, and I think that's an interesting story in of itself. But I think what's truly interesting is the nature of the public ownership, or if you like, uh, public nature of Nest itself. And, and the fact that it then engages with fund managers to make investments and creates a sort of public-private partnership model. Do you think that that's innovative? And do you think that the other... <clears throat> pension state pension providers that could maybe look to nest in other jurisdictions as a sort of a, a, a cutting edge example of how to deploy government funds on the one hand and on the on the other hand do you think john there are any conflicts here um, with maybe 
government wanting to promote certain types of infrastructure um, and using, um, if you like, publicly managed pension funds to do that? Well, we know, we know, of course, that the government is very keen to push its infrastructure agenda, particularly uh, in the aftermath of COVID. Um, and also, you know, I, I would wrap in the, the climate agenda of, of which we're, we're hearing an awful lot about this week. Um, and, you know, this government will, will not be shy to make political capital out of that kind of link. I would like to point to, um, you know, you talk about um, conflicts of interest. Um, Nest is, is not, you know, it's not public money. It's, it's, it's private savers money, but it's a pot that only exists because the government said it should exist. Um, it has a direct reporting line back to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, um, Theresa Coffey, um, uh, who also actually, you know, currently appoints all the board members of um, the, the trustee of Nest, um, called Nest, Nest Corporation. Um, and that, that, that's primarily due to um, the government providing a, a, a loan to set up nest in the first place um but even once that's paid back I, the links will still remain to some degree um now you know I, i'm also minded to think of things like um infrastructure banks you know and and that's a uh, obviously something that's going on as well in the uk the setup of the na new national infrastructure bank but of course there was the old gib as well um but also when we we have this conversation with people about bodies like that um we uh, the, the common refrain is, OK, this is great in principle, but it mustn't impinge upon the activities of the private sector or, or push them out. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear that and, and also hear from our, our audience today, you know, their thoughts on the links between or the similarities between things like infrastructure banks and something like Nest, which is very much government backed thing um, in terms of. Um, whether it could be uh, well actually to pick up on your point about public private partnerships i think that's a that's a really interesting one my thoughts go back to december 2019 when the big threat was of course jeremy corbyn's nationalization and and everyone we we're speaking to were you know i don't think many people thought he would perhaps win the election but um you know it was still a risk there and that and that's obviously didn't come to pass um but now, you know, here we've got a government which which has shown it can be muscular in terms of um, public spending and direct intervention into private enterprise and business. Um, also, kind of in a funny way, providing public ownership to people, but without the nationalisation element. And of course, with a maintained role for the private sector, <clears throat> which, is, you know, I think is a, an interesting uh, interesting parallel there um I'm, I'm glad you mentioned national infrastructure bank because actually i was that's just the question i was going to ask you if if we sort of track a history go back to gib which was then privatized of course um we look at national infrastructure bank we look at um nest which yes you correctly state is not public money it's um pension money that belongs to the employees but whose purse strings are controlled by the Secretary of State. And therefore, I think there is a public element. But if you put those three strands together, um, do you perceive that UK government feels that there aren't enough uh, investors investing in the UK's infrastructure? And do you perceive that the government feels that um, 
you know, a new body such in, uh, as the UK Infrastructure Bank needs to be established to fill that gap, which presumably should have been filled by uh, the Green Investment Bank for at least the green side of the agenda. Well, I think there's, there's two parts to that, isn't there? I mean, you know, obviously we're a publication that um, very much uh, kind of um, splits our gaze between, on the one hand, the infrastructure side of things, and then we have, you know, a kind of parallel and separate renewables uh, focus. Um, for the infrastructure side, you know, there clearly is a, a place and, and a gap for private finance um, that hasn't been filled since the days of PFI. Um, we've had, you know, reviews and consultations looking at spreading things like the RAB model um, around into in newer sectors. Obviously, it's been used on uh, utilities uh, for some time now, but it was, was, you know, quite notably used also in the Thames super sewer. And that's been spoken about for nuclear and who knows what else. Um, there could be some kind of CFD type arrangement for infrastructure. And I, and I think, you know, lots of people expect there will be some kind of settlement with government to and some kind of model agreed uh, to draw in the cash from from private sector uh, investors who currently don't have the opportunities um, to a large degree um, in certainly in greenfield infrastructure. Um, and we know that the government wants to build lots of it. Um, on the renewable side, I think, you know, there is obviously it's never been a, about public ownership. Um, in the UK, um, and it's it's been about you know kind of regulation and, and incentives and um, you know and that's been very successful so far I, I would say um, there is a huge you know we we see this week Boris Johnson saying you know we want to cut I think it was seventy eight percent of emissions by twenty thirty five and obviously that's on the on the route to net zero by twenty fifty um, there's obviously lots of capital in the market for renewables but there needs to be lots and lots and lots more so i think any any ways to encourage that and this perhaps is one of them and it may not you know it may actually end up filling a fairly small part and it has to be said it's not just about investing in the uk but it could be you know one tool that the government in a in an arm's length kind of way has to uh to court that investment into both infrastructure and, and renewable energy John, thank you very much for that uh, all-encompassing view and also historic context. I think it's probably a good time to maybe ask Maritina um, for her view and then maybe um, allowing you to sort of discuss your story of the week. Thank you, Marco. Yeah, definitely interesting insights from John. And uh, I would like to draw attention to... Uh, the riddle, uh, is there enough capital uh, in the market? Do we need more uh, public capital? Do we need, um, or do we need uh, more deals? Because we have been hearing for quite some time that the issue has never been a lack of capital, especially with the low interest, not just this year, but overall over the, the past five years. Uh, capital availability seems to be there, but uh, people have been uh, concerned about the lack of uh, deals to deploy at scale the capital that uh, is in the market. So to this end, I thought that maybe I could bring my perspective um, drawing from my uh, data life. So our ideal um, 
database here at Inspiration. Um, and uh, I think just because um, we just closed the quarter one of uh, 2021, I thought it would be very interesting to actually look back at the data and uh, see activity, uh, draw any observations, especially after a pretty unique uh, year that uh, uh, we all experienced in uh, 2022. Um, so as I said, uh, I reviewed Q1 2021 activity with actually Q1 2020. So I compared the quarters. And this is for renewables only, because if I include infrastructure, we would talk uh, forever and uh, we are limited by time. So my main findings are three. Uh, m a activity uh, remained at the same levels as last quarter. The numbers are very identical. And just roughly, I will mention some figures. Uh, 135 deals closed, financial, um, reached financial close, um, uh, disclosed transaction volume around 15 billion. And the equivalent numbers for Q1 2020, uh, it was 134 deals and uh, a worth of um, 14 uh, billions uh, US dollars. So uh, we see um, activity remain robust, um, no particular changes there, but I will follow up with some observations after. Second observation though, greenfield activity actually dropped significantly with respect to last year's first quarter. Again, I will just briefly mention some, some, some figures. So uh, we saw 104 deals um, reaching financial close, estimated value 17 billion in 2020, Q1 last year, but this year, the numbers were actually around 70, no, 47 deals of around 9 billion worth. And uh, lastly, refinancing also saw a significant drop. Uh, I will not bore you with more numbers. I will just say that the drop is uh, um, more than 60%. And in Q1 2021, uh, we only saw nine deals reaching financial close of a very small disclosed transaction value. Thank you, Maritina. Um, would you like to maybe highlight some of the deals which, looking at sort of all the deal closes, you think um, our audience would like to hear about? Just maybe some top line. Uh, yes, uh, sure. I can start with uh, with M&A. And before I actually go uh, into some interesting deals that uh, I noticed, um, I would like to, to make some observations with respect to these numbers. Um, first of all, overall, M&A deals, secondary activity dominated uh, deal flow. This is no surprise. This has been happening in our data reviews for years now. Um, so all good there. Secondly, and very importantly, M&A actually seemed completely unaffected by the global pandemic. Um, however, uh, due to the opportunistic approach that many investors were talking about uh, last year in spring and summer, 
I would possibly expect a more increased number, but turns out that um, project owners did not fall into this trap, did not give away their assets when they shouldn't have, and they just went on with deals that were already planned and not um, out of last minute changes in terms of the macro, macro level um, directions, um, which is actually very good for, for both investors, I would say, and, and existing asset owners. Um, the, um, the heftiest m and deal for the quarter took place mid-January 2021. Uh, it was when uh, French oil conglomerate Total bought uh, 20% minority interest in Adani Green Energy. As we already know, one of India's largest renewable uh, operators owned by the Indian conglomerate and Adani Group. Uh, the deal is worth 2. 5 US billion dollars and uh, we'll see total tapping into the um, pretty extensive um, um, a pipeline of a new capacity. So Adani Green Energy wants to deploy an additional 25 gigawatts of renewables by 2025, which is pretty soon. Um, big, big ambitions, uh, and it will also take a 50% uh, stake uh, in the group's operational portfolio, some uh, 2.5 gigawatts uh, of uh, solar. Uh, although it's the largest deal by transaction volume, uh, it's not located in the top regions, which usually are uh, Europe or North America, which is something I find, uh, I always find interesting how uh, top deals uh, sometimes and very often take place outside of uh, the top uh, regions, according to our data. And for reference, I will just say that it's, it's interesting that for Q1 2020, last year. Um, also, the top deal was a similar one, an acquisition of an IPP. At the time, it was a Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board's acquisition of uh, the US IPP Pattern Energy for, uh, <laughs> for 6.1 US uh, billion dollars. Um, can, um, Maritina, I, I have a question actually both for you and John. I mean, one of the key characteristics that you kind of um, uh, that have played out in the Q1 stats is the fall in Greenfield. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously COVID has a role, but then, you know, equally COVID uh, could have maybe um, changed the nature of some of the refinancings and uh, an M&A activi activity, but it hasn't. Can you maybe um, give your opinion and then I'll ask John his opinion as to why greenfields have been affected more significantly? Is this part of a yeah. secular decline? And does this play into the whole discussion of are there enough deals, uh, greenfield deals? Because, you know, for the market to be active, uh, you need the greenfield and then, you know, you have the M&A activity but you know the market in the last few years has been dominated by M and A, and we've all yeah. been waiting for Greenfield to emerge, but it still hasn't. If anything, it's getting slightly worse. 
Uh, well, that's a billion-dollar question. Um, uh, yes, so we, we saw we saw significant drop uh, this uh, this year. The, the first comment that came in uh, mind is that we're actually now seeing the impact of uh, COVID nineteen of the COVID nineteen disruption. Um, Thinking a year back, and if we remember what uh, people were talking about, although they showed uh, pretty high optimism in deal flow, there were some concerns uh, with regards to greenfield origination. Um, uh, Maybe it hit greenfield more than M&A, but The numbers come and don't come as a surprise. First of all, looking at 2020 overall um, uh, uh, deal flow, um, actually renewables managed to hold up to to the the entire disruption. Q4 saw a huge ramp up. Um, So um, I would expect that maybe this trend would continue, but maybe we are we are uh, uh, seeing that now. Um, uh, also, uh, I think it hits Greenfield particularly a, a bit more, uh, just because I don't think there's no pipeline of projects, or maybe there is, and we will discuss this today. Uh, but I think we are experiencing the, the issues with uh, development delays. And, um, and 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 permits and, and getting up and running this uh, this um, financial models without being uh, too too pessimistic. Um, I, actually, I I checked um, a pipeline um, activity and um, comparing. Comparing it with last year, still the pipeline uh, deals that we recorded are still lower. So there there are deals to be completed out there. And this is actually where my question to John and you would be. And it's relevant to what we discussed before. Do we need more public money? Do we need more support? in terms of financing, or do we need better market structures, less less bureaucracy, more regulatory support, especially when it comes to niche technologies and niche sectors like charging infrastructure, energy storage, hydrogen? Those are excellent questions. John, why why do you provide um, sort of your perspective? And then I'd like to make a maybe specific comment and then I'd be delighted to open up the floor. So of our participants, if you guys would like to ask questions, participate in the debate, um, you know, please get your questions ready. It can be on anything, on, on the stories you've heard today or on things that we haven't covered or other stories that we have covered but um, just in written form but haven't discussed today. So, John, over to you for a quick, uh, um, quick comment and then I'll make a comment and then we'll open up the floor. Sure. Um, the, uh, just to quickly address, you know, the, the greenfield slump, if you like. I mean, you know, I think it's it's helpful to to highlight what we're measuring here with this data. And, you know, this is data about financed projects. So, essentially, you're measuring, you know, the projects in the in our last phase 
up until last development phase, up until financial close. Um, so, you know, we can look at the areas before that phase that could have been hit over the past year. So, you know, we know that there was construction slowdown um, this time last year. That could be still unwinding to some degree. There's things like pay, uh, planning systems being held up, you know, meetings moving on to Zoom with councillors yeah. or whatever. Um, and that could all cause delays. And then there's also, you know, the, the, the potential for delays in the financing process itself. Um, we hear anecdotally lots of people that we speak to say, you know, that actually they've got that ticking away quite nicely now. But, um, you know, uh, who knows whether there's some degree of bravado there. I don't know. Um and, you know, perhaps we can hear from, from our audience um, if that is the case. Um, in terms of Maritita's question about, um, you know, mobilising more capital, um, you know, certainly in the UK perspective, um, you know, we've got the, and for renewables, we've got the CFD coming up this year, wind and, onshore wind and solar return to that after a number of years in the wilderness. Um, so we can see how much, you know, new capacity that backs. Uh, I, I, but yeah, it's all open to be to be seen on that front, and um, and then you know then we can get a good grip on actually is the vast majority of that those sectors going to be carrying on outside of the incentives frameworks anyway. Um, but you know, in, a, in general terms and across the globe, um, there's massive massive public mobilisation going on, the European Green Deal, etc. Um, the, the the Green New Deal in the US is is coming back, I think, and um, and Biden obviously this week held a uh, was holding a, a climate summit of his own, um, obviously a, a, a separate from COP26, which is also happening um, part, at least partly in the UK later on this year. So there's lots coming there, and um, you know this is obviously the key part of this decade to determine determine how the rest of it will go and, and whether those lofty goals will be met. Um, you know, when we have this conversation in, in 10 years' time or whatever? Um, from my perspective, quickly, I would say let's look at the UK as an example. We're sitting in the UK broadly, although we cover the global markets. Uh, but as a host of COP26, maybe it's worth making specific comments. Um, government always has a role in providing um, two things. One is incentives where the market isn't economically viable, and we've seen that with solar and wind very effectively, uh, the type of incentive changes um, as the market matures. Uh, so you start with fixed incentives, uh, tariffs, and you move towards auctions, and then ultimately, um, you know, the allocation uh, and support is reduced until a sector can be fully commercial. Um, and that in parallel, though, has to be um, supported by transparent regulation. Uh, allowing competition um, um, and transparent rules. Um, so where, where could the UK market, for example, provide additional incentives to unlock uh, transactions? And thinking of COP26, one of uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's major areas of focus has been hydrogen. Um, we, we all know that hydrogen has a, an important role to play in the decarbonisation, not, not only in the UK, but the glo global economy. Um, many sectors are hard to abate and pure electrification only gets you part of the way. And hydrogen is flexible. Uh, it's an energy store um, and um, it, it's also substitute fuel for diesel. Um, and therefore, providing all-encompassing um, um, incentives to allow the technology and specifically 
for green hydrogen, which meets all of the COP requirements, um, would be to drive down the cost of electrolysis. And some kind of support mechanism, I think, is in the offing at the moment. Uh, BASE is currently studying what the most appropriate form of incentives uh, could be, and, and particularly on industrial heat. So currently in the UK, transportation does have an incentive, but uh, heat doesn't. Uh, and that could unlock, I would say, um, billions of potential uh, investment transactions in just the UK market. And the same can be said for a number of European markets. So yes, um, there are deals. Um, and yes, government can provide um, incentives. Um, and yes, creating an infrastructure bank can help. But traditional um, tariff-based uh, CFD-type incentives are as effective as any other incentive to drive a new market. And that's, you know, driving a market which then drives the abatement of carbon, which then drives the COP26 agenda um, uh, for the UK economy, driving towards 2050 net zero targets. Um, so with that comment, I think I'd like to stop and um, ask the audience to ask questions. Does anyone have a question? Well, as uh, we, we have a question. Okay, so question from Oscar Cartwright. Um, is there nexus capital in the market? What are the bottlenecks holding this back? And I think, you know, we, we've begun to address it, but it is a massive issue. Thanks, Oscar, for that great question. It kind of, you know, keeps, keeps us busy, keeps inspiration in business, that, that answering that question, whether it's uh, analytically or uh, qualitatively on a day-to-day -day basis. It has to do with uh, returns uh, mandates as well. Um, when, when it comes to um, uh, large amounts from institutionals and funds, um, they, they will not just deploy 50 million in a project. They need, they need volume. Uh, this is why they're going with the portfolio approach. And it's just uh, right now they have uh, difficulty um, identifying projects that could um, scale up and uh, meet these uh, mandates and uh, return requirements. Uh, this is something that we have been uh, hearing from uh, quite some time now. Um, also, <laughs> it could be getting these uh, revenues in place to meet um, adequate returns, um, which especially with newer technologies, Unfortunately, it's not the case. And this is where regulation needs to come in to provide certainty uh, that they provided uh, for, um, for, for mainstream renewables, mature technology, solar, uh, wind. Um, these are just some thoughts on top of my head. Do you have anything to add, John? Yeah, I think, you know, lots of the... Um lots of the focus lately and, and you know this is obviously something in, extremely relevant to hydrogen as Marco mentions but you know lots of focus is on the, the government-led strategies on many fronts and it's not just hydrogen obviously we we await the UK government's hydrogen strategy but there, there's others that have already uh, materialized elsewhere in Europe and, and beyond um, and also you know on a multilateral basis too um, there's also things like, um, you know, we talk about newer areas and mobilizing capital towards them. Another good example is something like electric vehicle infrastructure. Um, 
in the UK. We've had the uh, the Charging Infrastructure Investment Fund, which is managed by Zook, um, and that's you know been fundraising and has deployed some capital, and and that's all about kind of you know encouraging that, and that follows on the back of you know similar approach for digital infrastructure, which is you know uh, it, it may not be entirely directly responsible but now uh, you know, obviously the, the pandemic has helped a great deal on that front um in terms of you know just stoking demand for digital infrastructure but now that you know i, I would gingerly argue or, or carefully argue is uh it's become a mainstream asset class for for infrastructure investment um and we see you know just just money pouring in there more or less every day of the week from from new players and existing ones alike so th- those kind of things initiatives can spark things off um it's on going back to the point on strategies obviously hydrogen strategies is not the only one uh, coming up from the uk government there's all sorts of um you know transport decarbonization strategy um there's heat heat as well heat decarbonization strategies coming as marco um you know so to point to to heat as you know that's only um it's obviously part of the hydrogen conversation, but also um, electrification too, um, certainly for uh, domestic heating. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one way to do it. I, I, perhaps I, it's just the start and, and you need to then f- fill in more more detailed regulation or incentives where they're due. Um, and obviously, you know, using the other tools that we've described over the course of this episode, like national infrastructure banks or, or, or you know, cross-border ones and um, and uh, other kind of pots of government money or government kind of instructed money um, can kind of be very useful to fill in other parts of the, the picture. Um, um, thanks, John. Um, I'd like to add my perspective too. Um, Oscar, you asked about bottlenecks. Let me give you um, a bottleneck. I believe, based on my experience, that there is a bottleneck between the development phase and the execution phase projects. So um, when we talk about a wall of money, um, generically, that is a wall of money available to an infrastructure class of projects, which, as John mentioned, is a moving target, but traditionally is an asset-backed, cash flow-backed um, um, set of assets. Um, and into that new assets kind of come into and EV infrastructure is is an asset which is you know on the cusp of joining mainstream um, sort of infrastructure um, and then digital infrastructure I think has already kind of gone over the uh, over the um, over the um, you know boundary and is mainstream infrastructure but one of the challenges is how do you get projects from the development phase um, in which there's sort of a glimmer in the eye of the developer into um, you know, project financeable, at least fundable phase. And, and, and I see the issue being the following one. Um, not all infrastructure projects can be project financed. And that's a conundrum that we've always faced. So by project finance, simplistically, I really mean not every project will have a government-backed, long-term, highly credit-worthy backed set of cash flows. Many projects... Um, are partially merchant, have some element of market risk, or have the ability to expand where you don't really know what the future off-taker is going to look like, um, and so are more commercial. And I think that the wall of money, or call it the wall of infrastructure money, is very prescribed. 
it, it just likes contractually backed traditional project finance, highly banked, highly legal, uh, structured projects. And, and I think um, what's missing is a more flexible approach. So to try and de-bottleneck uh, this perception um, of a mismatch between a developed project or developing project and a project of financial close, I would say that um, uh, traditional infrastructure investors need to maybe change the way that they do business, change the way that they look at infrastructure asset classes. And I would just make one historical kind of um, uh, look back and say that, you know, 20 years ago or more, um, you know, the mainstay of the project finance market was doing um, merchant power plants. Uh, today, if those very same projects uh, landed over the transom of most infrastructure investors, they, they would be thrown out. So full merchant is, you know, is a different asset class. However, a blend of asset-backed, contract-backed, and merchant, I think, is achievable. So I think that would be a way of de-bottlenecking that bottleneck. Um, I'm just conscious of the time, and I, you know, um, we could extend this for, for a lot longer, but we promised 45 minutes, and I will stick to that. I just wanted to thank Maritina and John for their insights, for their coverage, for their analysis, and, uh, and, and you know, for their response to a number of the questions that uh, have been posed. Um, and before, um, you know, I call the session to a close, I'd like to say that we will be broadcasting next week at the very same time. So for all you um, um, listeners um, out there, um, kindly uh, suggest your colleagues to join us in this debate, uh, maybe ask more questions. Uh, and I think my very final comment is that Inspiration runs a number of events um, um, in which we can have very, very interesting discussions. And I'd like to highlight just a few of these. So we have the Offshore and Floating Wind Virtual Summit on the 12th of May. We have a special regional Italian renewables virtual event on the 16th of June. Uh, both of these um, events are open to subscribers. So kindly go onto our website or contact our events team. And then we are very much looking forward to a COVID-free autumn in which we will be launching three uh, physical uh, non-virtual events, if I may sit, use that word. Um, and, and the three are uh, new energy infrastructure and energy storage combined, uh, which will take place on the 30th of September. Uh, Subsidy-free renewables and offshore wind on the 28th and 29th of October. And finally, uh, the hydrogen decade, which will take place on the 23rd and 24th November. So these are things to look forward to. Um, again, thank you for joining us on this inaugural episode of Inspiration Live. Uh, thank you to Maritina. Thank you to John. And we'll see you in one week. Thank you.